Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, I'm here today with Mark Goulston. Mark is the author of nine books, including Talking to Crazy, Real Influence, How to Get Out of Your Own Way, and Just Listen, which is the number one book in the world on listening. He's been named the number one psychiatrist in the country. He's trained FBI hostage negotiators. He's one of the top experts on suicide and emotional trauma. He's worked with many, many families to build bridges and repair damaged relationships and reconnect deeply to restore love and open communication between parents and children. And he's an immensely caring, thoughtful, and intelligent human being. And I'm honored to call him a friend and really excited to bring him on the show today to talk about some ideas that are actually uh, based on some things from some of his books, but are also things he's been working on lately about how relationships between parents and teenagers can become strained and four specific scenarios that we can encounter as parents and some tips and tactics on what we can do to build bridges, repair damaged communication, and reconnect with our teenagers no matter what they're going through. Really excited to talk about all of that and anything else that happens to come up. Um, Mark, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. So you have some great stories in your books about different situations you've seen in your practice with families and helping to bring families together when there there really are deep rifts happening between parents and teenagers. Could you talk a little bit about what you do and how you got started in all this? You know, there's kind of a background story. And the background story is I dropped out of medical school twice, uh, probably for untreated depression. And the first time I dropped out, took a year off and I worked at blue collar jobs and my mind came back to me. Then I came back and my I think my depression came back. So I asked for a, a second leave of absence but I met with the head of the school who really cared more about finances. And I can understand his point of view. His point of view is this, this kid is jumping out for the second time. He's not going to make it. We lose money every time someone takes a leave of absence because we lose matching funds. So, uh, but I get a call from the Dean of students who cares about students. And he said, you need to come in here because I got a letter from the main Dean and and I, I went in and the letter from the main dean said, I met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about different careers. 
and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw because I wasn't failing anything. I wasn't doing great, but I wasn't failing. <clears throat> and I asked the Dean of Students, what does this mean? And he said, you've been kicked out. And the uh, Dean of Students looked at me and he said, you didn't mess up because you're passing everything, but you are messed up. But if you become unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you another chance. And then he said, and even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. We should, but we don't. And you don't know how much the world needs that goodness. And you're not going to know it till you're 35, but you got to make it till you're 35. And at that point, I just started crying. I mean, he was, he was pummeling me with compassion and kindness, and I didn't know what to do with it. And you're going to let me help you. If he had said, if I can help you, give me a call. There's a good chance I would have gone back to my apartment. I wouldn't have called him. And there's a possibility I wouldn't be here today. But what happened is the combination of seeing, a, seeing value in me that I couldn't see, seeing a future from me that I couldn't see, seeing value in me that I couldn't see, and then his going to bat for me against the medical school, saying we're going to give him a second chance, it flipped the switch in me. And so what happened, my second year off, instead of a blue collar job, I went to a place called the Menninger Foundation, which is a big psychiatric foundation, one of the biggest in those years. And it was in Topeka, Kansas. And I worked in one of their programs there at Topeka State Hospital. It was in the middle of winter. Uh, and I would spend a lot of my days just walking on the grounds with snow uh, with schizophrenic farm boys. And, and the psychiatrist there said, you have a knack. And up until that time, I didn't think I had a knack for anything. So knowing that and internalizing that I had a knack, it made me think maybe I have a future. So I finished that year, came back, finished medical school, then went to psychiatry training at UCLA. But one of the things uh, that we shared uh, before this interview is there's a talk that I've been giving for 20 or 30 years to middle school parents. Uh, there was one presentation about keeping your teenager safe. And the co-presenter was a FBI uh, officer. And he shared about all the things uh, with parents that they should look out for to keep their ch child safe. But I did something a little bit different. The title of my talk was, It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. And what I did is I did a role play with the parents and I played a teenager who was overprotected. And I said, I'm going to go to that party this weekend. And you're not calling the other parents. 
And yes, there'll probably be drugs. There'll probably be gangs. There'll be guns, but you've ruined my effing life. And so the role play with the parents was, it's up to you to talk me out of this. I'm this headstrong kid of yours and you're a little bit freaked out. <laughs> and so they try to talk me out of it. But I've done this role play in many different settings, including training FBI. I always end with one of these gotchas. So uh, I'm frustrating the parents. And I said, let me see if I understand you. You want what's best for me, right? And they said, yes. And you're only thinking about what will give me a good life. Is that right? They said, yeah. And I said, so if I do exactly what you tell me to do, and I follow everything you tell me to do, my reward is that I get to grow up and be as happy and well-adjusted as all of you are. <laughs> and, and these are not well-adjusted parents. They're divorced, <laughs> they're angry, they're whatever, but it was a real gotcha. But, yeah. then what I, but then what I do is I say, this is what you could have told me or asked me that would have caused me to cooperate with you. And, and briefly, instead of our getting into an argument, what I'd want you to say is, it's really important to you that you go to this party, isn't it? Yes. I mean, really important because you haven't been going to any parties like this. Yes. Uh, how did it become so important to you to go to this party? And what are we missing as your parents that we haven't talked about because you're a good kid, but clearly you're unhappy about something. And what is it that we do as your parents that have frustrated you, angered you, maybe messed with you, even though you have a 4.3 GPA that we love? And, and that what you really want them to do is to talk about what's missing in their life, how they feel odd, how they have acne, how they feel that you know their life is terrible, and this whole idea that they're going to be high achievers, they don't feel it's going to make them happy because they're just focusing on achievement has not made them happy. In fact, they're miserable. So what you really want to do, you want to get them to talk that out of your, uh, get that off their chest. A friend of mine's 14-year-old son died by suicide three years ago, and we've been doing presentations to an organization called YPO, Young President's Organization, and a younger version called EO, Entrepreneur Organization. Yeah. And, uh, and he tells the story of what he missed as an entrepreneur uh, because he thinks it was his fault, which is heart-wrenching. And then I talk about things you can do to get through to your teenager. Some of the things that Jason Reed talked about uh, that are interesting, he said, when you ask your child how they're doing and they say, I'm great, they're usually good. But when they say I'm fine, they're not. What they're, what they're really saying is get off my back, leave me alone. 
And one of the things that he brought up that he's trying to teach parents, he's a serial entrepreneur. He solves problems. Uh, he succeeds, he fails, he succeeds, but he's, you know, he's a, uh, I think he's an Iron Man, uh, you know, a black belt. He's an entrepreneur. He builds businesses. And one of the things he said is, I made it impossible for my kid because my kid compared himself to me and we didn't talk about feelings. You know, my kid compared to me thought he was a loser and I never talked about being vulnerable. I never tell my family if I'm afraid that I'm going to lose a business. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And he said, so we never showed vulnerability. I never showed vulnerability. So when he was feeling it, uh, he could go to his mom, but that, you know, but he's a young man. And his mom, you know, would be comforting to him. But he was a teenager. He wanted to grow up to be strong like his dad. What Jason said is what I didn't realize is when your child is stuck in deep anxiety or depression, you can try and give them some solutions, but if they don't work, you have to find a way to go where they're at. Because inside what they're saying is, I can't do it like you, mom. I can't do it like you, dad. You have to come and find me. So, but what happens is as we go through life and we feel pain, we look to our parents, especially our mom when we're young, and how they respond to us, we internalize that. So there's something, there's a term that one of my friends has mentioned to me called radical attunement. And radical attunement means really getting where the other person's coming from. You know, so they really feel connected with, and when they feel connected with, they feel safe. But it's very rare, especially for millennial parents, to have radical attunement because it requires letting go of everything they're doing, being patient, curious, and, and really just seeking to, to know where your child's coming from, as opposed to just checking a box because you have to go back because you have a deadline at your company by 5 p.m. that day. And so what happens is you internalize what you pick up from your parents and that can give you a sense of well-being or not so well-being. There is a social psychologist uh, named Eric Erickson. He talked about the, uh, uh, the psychosocial levels of development. And the very first step he talks about, which people remember, is basic trust or basic mistrust. So when your baby, your infant, your child has a sense of basic trust, they go out in the world and, you know, they're a little nervous, but they're not that worried because they have basic trust. But if at a very young age, uh, you are out of, a, out of tune with them, where the pain was just awful, where, where you thought they were hungry and what they were crying about is they had poop in their diaper or vice versa, uh, if they develop basic mistrust, then when they go out in the world, they're anxious because at any given moment, the world's going to do something and it's going to trigger how they felt scared, powerless, maybe even terrified. You know, some of those screams in the middle of the night when 
when you're saying we got to we got to teach them to sleep through the night. We're not going in. We're keeping them in the crib. And 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 if you're parents who've lived through that, you know it's pretty tough, but they're safe, and you know most kids adjust to that. And and so there so there's a chart that shows that all through life, when we run into obstacles or we have a triumph, we look back at our parents, our managers, our bosses, and uh, how they respond to us, we internalize. And there's a second chart chart which you'll be able to see in which I outline that when you look back, there's, there's four different ways our parents, our managers, our bosses can respond to us. They can coddle us and spoil us, do everything for us, which keeps us from ever learning independence. They can be critical of us and shame us and tell us stop crying already or man up. Uh, and when that happens, our hurt and fear turns into anger. And when we become teenagers, we tend to act out in angry ways. If the third way is if they just neglect us because they're preoccupied, they're out of work, they're depressed, uh, they don't know what to do. Then when we run into obstacles in life, we're all alone. So what we learn to do is we learn to not take chances. And life is about taking chances, making mistakes, learning you can handle the mistakes and, 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 and moving on. And so uh, if you internalize either being coddled, being overly criticized or being neglected, you can see that you're not really set up to really meet the challenges of the world. If you've been bailed out and coddled when you, uh, when you get to, uh, meet those challenges of the world as a young adult, what's going to happen is you're going to expect other people to bail you out. And when they're not there to bail you out, you're going to be kind of lost. Or if you've been overly criticized and something bad happens, you're going to get angry. Just like someone blamed you for crying because you were in pain, you're going to blame uh, whatever uh, upset you and you're going to make them the enemy. Or if you were neglected and you run into something, what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to pull away and withdraw and you're going to go hide out in your apartment when people don't know what happened to you. Now, the fourth way is something that we can all learn. And I learned it uh, when I, I learned it when I dropped out of medical school. Uh, and, the, and the Dean of Students helped me out. And the fourth way is having a loving teacher mentor coach. Uh, so it's not someone who coddles you, uh, but it's someone who has some skills at teaching you things, mentoring you and coaching you. People listening in may not know the name John Wooden, but John Wooden was the winningest collegiate basketball coach at UCLA. And he wrote a book and he talked about how some of his mentors were his late wife who died, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa. So it doesn't even have to be anyone you know. It can be someone who inspired you. And in the book, there's also some NBA players like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton. And you can tell that when they're describing, they called him coach, that that was amongst the highlights in their entire career. 
And it wasn't because he just taught them basketball, but he was that loving teacher, mentor, coach. You're probably familiar with Tiger Woods. In 1997, Tiger Woods was playing in his first professional master's tournament. And he shot 40 on the front nine the first day. And if you don't know about golf, 40 is not a very good score as a pro. It's either three or four over par. And, and so uh, he not only looked back, he went to his dad, Earl Woods, basically to say, I don't know what's happening. The wheels are coming off. But because Earl had uh, taught him, mentored him, coached him, uh, they were really very, very close, you know, and then they ran into difficulties. But by the end of Earl's life, you know, Tiger really, you know, returned to loving and honoring his dad. But at that early age, he went back to Earl and Earl basically uh, absorbed his pain. He didn't belittle it. And he just said to him, you've been here hundreds of times before. Just do what you need to do. And Tiger Woods went out and shot 18 under par, which had never been equaled uh, until this uh, last year. But I think the record still holds because the person who shot 20 under par, I don't think he shot 40 in the front nine. Yeah. What, do, what do I hope you're getting from this? That underneath the acting out of our teenagers, there's usually some wound, some hurt, some fear that we don't talk to them about and they don't talk to us about. And one of the reasons they don't talk to us about it as parents is because they don't have a lot of confidence that we'll be able to talk with them in a good way. Why? Because nobody talked to us. It's been passed on by generations. And when underneath the anger is some sort of trauma that caused fear, hurt. And if you look at it this way, if you're a teenager and something happened that's upsetting or traumatic, and let's say it triggers something from way back when where you felt uh, hurt, afraid, maybe panicky. Uh, and if you're that teenager and you have a choice to feel afraid and panicky or angry and hostile and there's nothing in between, you're going to be angry and hostile. But here's the interesting thing. If you're feeling hurt and afraid and close to panic and you're all alone in it and you don't know how to have a conversation with your parents, uh, you don't have much confidence that that will help. And what you really need is a real, a real connection with them. You want their undivided attention. Well, when you act out in a way that's angry, hostile, belligerent, you get their undivided attention. Unfortunately, your undivided attention is usually punitive. We're here with Mark Goulston talking about how to repair damaged relationships with teenagers, heal broken communication patterns, and reconnect. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Occasionally, I've talked to the parents of some of the people I've mentored, and sometimes I'll, I'll speak to the parents and they'll say, 
why is it that my child listens to you, but they won't listen to me? <laughs> and I say, well, it's because your child sought me out. It was an act of his or her independence. It's if you essentially believe that your kids down deep are good, then something happened to them either recently or a long time ago uh, that has bubbled up and triggered the way they're acting now. You can run this by them. You say, uh, you know, my main role as a parent is that when you hit age 18 and you go into the world, that you have passion as opposed to boredom, that you have stick to itness as opposed to just quitting when something becomes hard, uh, that you have patience as opposed to impatience. You know, that you're able to cooperate, cooperate when you need to, uh, as opposed to being a know-it-all. And my main role is for you to look like the good, the good alternative when you're 18, as opposed to the bad alternative. Going forward, as your mom or dad, uh, what do I need to do more of? And what do I need to stop doing so that you end up? as that 18 year old who has passion, perseverance, patience, can cooperate, uh, can deal with disappointment, can take a hit, you know, when life hits you. you know, what is it that I need to do more consistently so that's what you end up being? And what is something that I should stop doing completely so that you end up being that way? You know, and see what they say. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.